0: I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about The Matrix, the 1999 film, of course, written and directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha O'Rand.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. hello, hello, and hello. Alex Cayetos hi it was deja vu wait a minute yeah. What happened? They, must have, they must have changed something <laughs> um okay so we're talking about the matrix again so uh you're not going crazy if you're like didn't they do this once we did do this once before uh way b- I, what episode was that like nine or 16 10? 16 okay so it's been like two years we did an episode on the matrix with patrick h willems which was really really fun uh but alex wasn't there and so He didn't get to weigh in on what is one of his favorite movies. And it's the month of The Matrix. Matrix Resurrections is coming out uh, at the end of this month. And so we're going to do a Matrix trilogy run. So revisiting The Matrix, and then we're going to talk about Reloaded, and then we're going to talk about Revolutions, and Mm -hmm. then we're going to go see Resurrections and release that as a patron exclusive episode. So there's lots of Matrix to come. So let's just dive in and start with uh, The Missing Link. So Alex, you, we've, we've talked a little bit um, in our episode on our top, you know, films of, top favorite films of 1999, uh, The Matrix was obviously discussed there. Um, so we know a little bit, but yeah, generally speaking, what's your relationship to The Matrix for people who might not know?
2: Yeah, man, it was my number one of 99 of mm-hmm. just... It, that was so easy. It was my first, you know, thing on the list was obviously Matrix is number one. Um, and it it just, you know, it was as transformative in my filmmaking path as Jurassic Park. You know, Jurassic Park maybe was the seed that began it all, you know, like, oh, I wanna make movies. And the Matrix kind of exploded what like movies could be and what I could like aspire to in this medium, because it just it's it's an impossible movie. Like like no movie should be able to accomplish all the things that this one film does in two hours. It, it's, it seems impossible, and I think part of that impossibility it, it's almost like this just layered machine where it's it's got it's got this amazing perfect archetypal hero's journey story, um, which just resonates with a mass audience guaranteed every moment of it is political and spiritual and philosophical and uh, there's every scene you can approach it from different uh interpretations or mm-hmm. there's layers of meaning in every moment of this movie in a way that that just it seems like it just kind of was beamed down to earth and like <laughs> couldn't have been made by humans cuz how could any human like pack everything with so much meaning and have it all work so well and have it still be an entertaining, awesome action movie that also changed how we watch action uh-huh. movies and also, you know, brought cyberpunk this literary art form into this like perfect cinematic expression. Like it does too many things at once so well that it just shouldn't exist. Um, <laughs> so, cause yeah, usually, usually what you expect from any work of art is, Oh, they really aimed high. They really aimed for, they want to do this and this and this really admirable that they aim for that. But like, of course you can't pull that all off. Like of mm-hmm. course that can't work. That's too much to try to accomplish with one two hour work of art. And this movie does it. And I almost nothing I've seen does as much as this movie does with the time it has with the story and the resources available to them. It's just, Anyway, so I, it's hard for me to even talk about because it, it just it's, right. it's a magic, uh, impossible movie, and I have yet to really it hasn't really met its match in my mind as far yeah. as just just like really, uh, mass entertainment you know action movie that also is this deep and this layered this intelligent this rewatchable where i still mm-hmm. rewatch it after the millionth time and i'm realizing oh man this is so political and like oh wow like this is so well conceived it's just too much so um yeah i'm i'm really being incoherent at this point but uh, but this is my feelings about this movie yeah
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean uh, you know it's funny cuz i watched it twice in the past week or so uh, also just cuz i was like yeah i want to watch it again um and i was just thinking the second time around like so many movies we just talked about the ring and we talked about you know an iconic image like the girl coming out of the out of the tv right that happens in the last 10 minutes of the movie and it happens once and like that's the thing you're waiting for when you watch the entire movie right the matrix is like every scene maybe i'll be i'll be generous every other scene um (laughs) is is like something iconic some iconic line or some iconic shot and and some of them were were taken from other sources right like the matrix didn't invent literally everything it does but it sure. also found a way to take things from those sources and put it into a, a big blockbuster movie and just make it so rewatchable, but also so iconic. Where you're, like, you're, you're like, oh, I forgot. I was like waiting for this amazing scene, but I forgot this amazing scene is to here too. And like, <laughs> that's, that's what makes it so fun. And you you don't get that with a lot of movies. You get it with maybe some Star Wars and maybe, you know, some of the big like Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, whatever. You get some movies where it just feels like everything is iconic. And The Matrix is definitely one of those. I have a slightly more coherent thought to add to my <laughs> ramble.
2: I think part of what also was so powerful about it at the age, you know, because how old were we when this came out? 12, 13 yeah. yeah, so, so yeah. that is a very kind of, that's a formative developmental moment. Uh, you're yeah. becoming a young adult. And I think this movie is so impactful to like that 12, 13, 14-year-old because it's, it's almost like psychoactive. Like, like it, it mm. activates... <laughs> Um, an awareness in your mind of systems and like yeah. constructs. Like like there's a I think there's a developmental psychology term actually called like construct aware. When you become aware of you know, you are living in a society, in in a political system, in a in a economic system, you, you become aware of the constructs that have been invisible to you as you grow grown up, you know, swimming in that water. Right. This movie is basically just you know showing you in so many ways, look at these constructs that envelop your life, um, you know, through metaphor, but also sometimes very quite literally, um, with with the life of Mr. Anderson and his economic situation and his job. And it, it basically just asks you to question the constructs that you've always been in. Um and and I think that's a really like it's a mind-blowing thing when you're 13 to to have a movie so clearly open your mind up to that way of thinking um so that that's that's part of your mind yeah it's part of why i think it just like
3: changed my life at that point you know beyond just my filmmaking so jealous of people who like were 13 when this movie came out that just feels like the (laughs) perfect age i was like you know first year at college kind of getting a little um you know uh what's kind of jaded you know and just sort of like oh this movie's cool but like it's but like to have been 13 just i can't can't imagine <laughs>
1: yeah when i think about this movie or like the more that i sort of revisit it and and how it is so perfect there's this uh miraculous sort of efficiency and tightness to it all um that doesn't feel simple so it's kind of what you're saying alex where it's like it's operating on a spiritual level it's operating on like a, a psychological philosophical level it's also like being incredibly entertaining just like on a basic plot character movie level like in no scene am i ever confused am i ever lost does it feel like there's a stray or extra like line of dialogue that doesn't need to be there right everything has just been like cut down to within an inch of its life and yet the way it's constructed like so many of those lines are doing you know eight different things at the same time they're offering you like this interesting philosophical idea while they're delivering exposition to you while they're doing a character thing while they're setting up something that's going to get paid off later in addition to just like being like an iconic character moment or like performance moment for the actor and so i think that's part of the reason why when you watch it it's like no tiny bit or hair of it is is wasted it's all just loaded so much with like dramatic impact and meaning and it flies by is the other thing is that yeah. like
2: yeah.
1: it's so tight and like it just zips past you that you're never you never have the the even like a, a moment to take a breath much less be bored right mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um i think that also gives it its rewatchability where it's that layering where you're, you're getting something new from the line where the first time you watched it, you were getting the plot and the exposition. The second time you watched it, you were getting the character thing We're like, oh my God, Morpheus feels this way, right? When he says that. And then the third time you watch it, you're like, but wait, how is that related to this like idea? So it it gives it that rewatchability. And yet you're not, dwelling too long on it because they're onto the next thing and the next line is just as loaded with meaning and all this mm-hmm. stuff and so it's just and the scenes are are just um, like I'm, I'm using dialogue as an example but the scenes are like an extrapolation of that where the scenes themselves like wall to wall are constructed that efficiently um, and tightly and then just knit together in just this very very like strong chain of causality where there's this propulsion to the thing and it just pulls you all the way to the end <sighs> And every single thing it promises you, it delivers on yes. like ten times over mm. in a way that you couldn't have guessed. But it's just so satisfying when you get there. It's uh what a masterpiece.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So like rewatching it, I feel like I've my like the the rose colored glasses of nostalgia have sort of worn off. And I feel like I've been able to look at this movie a bit more objectively in this most recent rewatch, and then also watching the sequels uh, in preparation for those episodes, like, my brain has just been doing a lot of, like, compare and contrast and, like, trying to really Mm. pull it apart and understand, like, why does this one work and those don't, but why does, like, this work, period, even, like, in relation to other things? Because there aren't other things, like The Matrix, really. does all these things, like we're saying. And I feel like there are kind of, like, two observations that hit me and one of which is trisha in in a recent episode we were talking about i think it was there will be blood you mentioned uh like the idea of fables and like movies Mm. as fables even or just like mythology as we've talked about like the story is very archetypal and the movie really benefits from it treating itself as that like this is a myth this is a fable you are being told a story like it's Harry Potter. It's like we're Mm. going on a, you know, the hero's journey 100%. And I think that that buys you things that you would otherwise need. We're like, I'm thinking about Neo in this most recent rewatch. And we know almost nothing about Neo. Like Neo is a pretty blank canvas yeah. and obviously intentionally so but like he's getting older has a job he hates stuck in this you know like all of his situation is very symbolic and stuff but we don't he has no backstory essentially mm-hmm. but also doesn't need one because of the kind of story that he's in and so i think the the idea of movie as myth paired with the genre of action movie mm-hmm. just like doubles down on that we're like we don't need our action heroes to have complex backstories and Mm. like you know deeply moving character arcs about their relationships and families and blah 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 like we don't need a bunch of that to drive the the plot or the experience from moment to moment and so i just thought that was something that was really interesting that like this movie works because it is relatively spare and terms of like the baggage that can come from character and is mostly working on that archetypal symbolic level scene to scene moment to moment and across the entire thing which i think is also a problem that reloaded and (laughs) revolutions have as they are not doing that but we'll talk about that Mm. in those episodes
2: yeah well i because i i do think that there's something about this perfect package of this first movie where because we don't go to zion and because we don't get into like the weeds with the world building everything can still function as allegory like things aren't super literalized and there isn't like there aren't a whole lot of um yeah like like everything in this film could be read as allegory metaphor for something in our worlds and Mm -hmm. and it it functions that way as like this self-contained allegorical tale fable, like you said, Michael. And I think, yeah, I really felt that rewatching the second two movies. uh, It's like, I don't want, I don't want to know all this. I don't want to see all this even. Like, this isn't interesting anymore. Like, this world was really cool when it was still a mystery, when, when it wasn't so fully fleshed out that it's become, like, almost not exciting anymore because it's just kind of drab and so much of this first movie is mystery. You know, like the whole first half is this amazing mystery. And you don't mm-hmm. have... When when they're introducing new things in the second and third movies, and we can save some of this, but it, the new information I'm getting, I didn't... I wasn't asking that question. I didn't want right. this information. Right. <laughs> and, like, yeah. I had no interest in this information, but it's being given to me. Um, whereas as we you know explored in our video uh, that featured Patrick about the matrix, you know, p- one of the big things this movie does is raise questions early on that we desperately want the answers to. And so all the exposition is so exciting and so rewarding to get. And, and it's almost like this movie gave me all the exposition I needed about this world. And so everything that comes afterwards is like extra, and it's kind of weird and kind of all over the place, and, mm. and I wasn't dying to know it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's I'm excited to explore the next two movies for sure. Yeah.
1: Well, to both of your points, Michael and Alex, I was thinking a lot about the characters this time around and how much you benefit from, yeah, just being able to rely on character archetypes, especially within the relationships. So like, this is a love story. <laughs> Right. Right. <laughs> and that's and, what
3: they tell me. And Neo
1: yeah. dies at the end, but Trinity loves him back to life. And because yeah. of uh, all those
3: scenes where we build all the chemistry between the two. This is of what them. I'm saying. <laughs> right. Like, right. Uh,
1: <laughs> like if I have to criticize one thing about this movie, which I don't, Um, but (laughs) I think that one of the, one of the actual on paper weakest aspects of it is the love story component to it Um, Mm -hmm. because Trinity and Neo say almost nothing to each other or very, very little (laughs) to each other. And because we don't have any context for their characters there's very little to help us understand why they would be in love, right? And sorry, go ahead, Michael.
0: Just I feel like the the scene, the one scene where I was like, was that the moment where they uh-huh. exchanged like now. stuff? <laughs> was like he he was driving by like on the way to the oracle, and he was like, I mm. used to eat there, really good noodles. Really good and noodles. He, like, she like kind of smiles, and I'm like, love? I guess I love they're bonding over.
1: Question mark? Yeah. Um, well, that's the whole thing is that you know we we are not offered context for their characters. And we know nothing about them outside of the matrix um, and, and like the, you know, the real world matrix, the context of the resistance, etc. Um, and ultimately I think there are reasons why it works, but with any attempt to ground the characters, I feel like the strings start to show in, you know, the problems with the, with operating and archetypes, um, The astounding part is you don't notice uh, most of of the time that you watch this movie because you're just so caught up in the plot and the action. And actually, the primary relationship is really kind of between Neo and Morpheus anyway. Right. um, It's not really between Neo and Trinity. Uh, And there are a number of other reasons I think it works, not the least of which is that you have Cypher there to be like the creep version mm-hmm. in the triangle where you're like, hate him, wish you could be with, with Neo um, instead, Trinity. So that's another big part, you know, Cypher's also this like Judas archetype, right? He's just the betrayer. Right. And yeah. so like villainous villainy over there probably is also <laughs> a creep, <laughs> like villains often are. Um, so I think that that contrast between Neo and Cypher goes a long way towards selling us on Neo and Trinity. Mm-hmm. But mostly it's just Trinity kind of looking longingly at Neo and not telling him that she's in love with him, which she is because the Oracle told her she is. Right. Uh, again, she also I, apparently I, stalks
3: I, him a lot, according to the opening dialogue with Cypher. <laughs> like, right. You like watching right. him, don't you?
1: Yeah, exactly. No, and, and that's the thing is that like, I'm I'm going to go ahead and like pull this apart and critique it, but it's astounding that you might not even think about it. Or like, I, you know, didn't think about it until probably the 18th time I watched this, Mm -hmm. Um, that it is based on nothing, nothing whatsoever at all. And yet the entire climax hinge point of the movie comes down to Trinity just saying she loves him. (laughs) Wow.
3: (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, it's funny, we talk about the 90s, and especially the the late 90s being this like turning point in film in the same way the 70s were where it was like, oh, movies could be this now. Um, and I feel like it's interesting to look at what things feel like they feel very modern when you watch them now and what things feel like a sort of kind of hangover from the previous decades and the well, of course, the hero and like female lead are going to end up together at the end is like kind of just a thing that happened in movies, you know, in like action yep. movies and stuff. And it just, it didn't have to be earned. It was just like, well, of course it happens. And then now that feels so weird and like like such a bygone thing. So, I, so it almost feels like, it's astounding that you can still watch The Matrix today and so much of it feels modern, but there are things like that that feel like, oh yeah, I guess maybe 99, maybe that didn't feel quite as weird as it does now, uh, but it it definitely feels weird now.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah well and i think that it again to its credit because it's working in this mythological archetypal thing you know what when i'm watching it if i think too literally about it i'm like yeah wait what she's in love with him why but i feel like because all the characters are these archetypes it almost feels like she's just in love with like the one like the idea of Mm. hope and like future and so i feel like there's enough like go room with that and then you do see them you know break into the building together and they
3: have some like cool teamwork and stuff that like i feel like when they murder actual humans together right yeah. <laughs> i mean <laughs> they're all just batteries
2: when <laughs> they commit a mass shooting yeah in a lobby
0: <laughs> the lobby scene like is really hard for me to watch now well, the beginning
2: like, of it especially i wouldn't mm-hmm. yeah. be
0: okay with them like removing that scene from the movie actually which 13 year old me would have flipped out if he'd heard me say that right. so that was 13 year olds me like favorite scene um but yeah they are just like they're murdering people anyway
1: I want to come back to the lobby scene and all set pieces. Like I think we just need to yes. have a conversation about like yes. set pieces and how this movie is a masterclass in constructing set pieces. Um, but I had one other, a few other thoughts about Trinity and why she rules so hard. <laughs> and, and, and I think that that's probably a, why we like her and Neo or like we buy her and Neo together. Um, and the movie does an interesting POV thing by opening up with Trinity. And right. like, you know, we, we uh, sort of covered the opening when we talked to Pat, but we didn't really talk about what it does for us in our relationship as an audience to Trinity. Um, and, you know, I think Pat mentioned like, what we can tell from the opening like on paper is that she did something illegal and she kills a lot of people, but we <laughs> like her anyway. <laughs> and uh-huh. I think that that's really critical that we like her anyway. And I think that putting us in um, the position of watching this like, it's kind of just like a classic underdog situation, Mm. right? Where it's like one person who, what we see her doing that's illegal is doesn't seem to be harming anybody, right? We've heard her talking on the computer or whatever, to cipher, Um, but she's just sitting at a computer in a dark and empty room. Cops swarm in there to get her too many of them, right? And then like this these really slimy, like, you know, FBI looking agents show up. Um, and they're everyone is just like the most boorish masculine stereotype of like a cop or an FBI <laughs> agent. And she's just one little girl. And they say it exactly like that. Like, I think my men can handle one little girl.
3: No lie- lieutenants, your men are already dead. <laughs> 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 Perfect. <laughs>
1: a plus um but immediately it's it's that context around the arrest because all of that is something we hear and see before we see trinity kicking ass right mm-hmm. and so it kind of puts us on her side of like we think we know how this scene should go we think we know how it would go and these guys are all jerks and then we have Trinity by herself on the other side. And we want to see her get out of it, right? We want to see her succeed. And so I think there is something very critical about like that character dynamic. And then putting us in her corner in the first couple minutes of the movie is really essential to make us fall in love with her. And I think that if we fall in love with her and we fall in love with Neo... We do the work of falling them in love with each other.
3: All <laughs> right. And, and we yeah. don't need
1: to make the movie do it. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, yeah. sure. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, even something as simple as think about rewriting one line uh, where she says, Are there any agents? And he says, Yes. And she goes, God damn it. You know, like she is like, that is like you're saying, Tricia, we're like, Oh, she's, she's worried. You know, like we are. Mm-hmm. Think about if you just rewrote that line for her to be like, I can handle it. Or something like that. Then it's like, oh, is this a bad guy? Is this someone right, that we're not right, supposed right. to like? But it's like the movie is telling us this is a character who is who is fearing for her life right now. And you don't know whether she's good or bad, but you know that, you, that the movie is sort of saying you are supposed mm-hmm. to care about her. Yes. Yeah. Well,
0: and uh, obviously the performances do so much of in this movie and the other moment that i think about and that sequence is when she flies through the air and rolls down the stairs and then like has her guns out and she's like get up trinity mm-hmm. like she's having to psych herself up to like keep going yeah i'm doing even more of like what you're saying Brent. of like she is clearly very concerned and the underdog thing like you're saying trish is very palpable and after seeing her do all that stuff you're like yeah get up I want to see what's going to happen next so yeah I feel like the performances from her and then obviously everybody in you know Morgan not Morgan Freeman <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne sorry I started to say Morpheus and it became Morgan Freeman Lawrence Fishburne, <laughs> uh Joey Pants etc like there's so much commitment by all of the actors in all of the roles to make us believe in that world because you really feel like they believe and, you know, I believe that Lawrence Fishburne has been running around, teach, like yanking people out of the matrix and mm-hmm. running them through simulations and like doing this for like, you know, how many months, years it's been going on. Um, so I feel like that's just obviously in a movie this good, that's always going to be one of the things that elevates it is really good performances. And Carrie Ann Moss is amazing as Trinity. Yeah. Obviously.
1: Well, and just to say this is that you are not, uh you're not taking that big of a gamble in some ways by writing an archetypal movie because by definition of making a movie, you are going to cast human beings in archetypal roles. So like on paper, these characters might be essentially flat, but if you cast human beings to play them and like you, you know, give the actors the space to, like, embody uh, these characters. And, like, I guarantee you, Carrie Ann Moss and, and Lawrence Fishburne and everybody, they have, like, you know, all the all the stuff we're saying is not in this movie, is not in this movie, but is probably in their heads, you know, when they're doing, like, all the backstory kind of stuff or context kind of stuff. Um, it's in Reloaded, I think, that uh, Morpheus has, like, um, one of his costumes has, like, these things on his arms like they're like barber sort of like shirt sleeve things where um, he can like roll up his shirt sleeves and it's Lawrence Fishburne that was like talking to the costume designer and he was like can I have those I think I think Morpheus used to be a barber right like when in when he was in the when he was Mm, in the matrix and so you know it doesn't it doesn't it's not in the text. Like, it's just in Lawrence Fishburne's head canon about- His shaved
3: head, <laughs> that his character. That he, <laughs> so you know, sure,
1: the way that he plays the character, right? But I, I'm just like, it, I as a screenwriter am heartened by this movie where it's like, yeah, I don't actually necessarily need to do the work if it's going to be distracting in the text. But if you cast people who are really going to do the work before they show up on set and do the performance, then you're going to get something magical and special anyway. Because a really good actor can embody even something that's essentially archetypal.
2: And, and that is why Keanu Reeves is so perfect, yes, especially yes, in this first yes. movie, because he is really great at being overwhelmed hacker dude who is just mm-hmm. trying to take in all this information and is just genuinely overwhelmed for most of the story first by just the situation he finds himself in and then by the responsibility and the pressure of being the one not being the one oh crap morpheus's life is in my hands what i do about that he's kind of in this like decision paralysis and overwhelm for most of the mm-hmm. movie and Keanu Reeves plays that really well you know if you you kind of want like an actor who's not too um coming on too strong you know somebody who's who's kind of more passive and receptive uh, and but then he looks amazing in those fight scenes so he he really checks all the boxes for this movie and once again in Reloaded and uh, Revolutions it feels like neo is now needing to go to more complex places and go maybe on a more dramatic character arc and he's still playing it all pretty mm. you know i don't know like chill
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah
2: um and that that is a, a problem uh, but in this first movie it's perfect
0: yeah i mean I, we'll we'll talk about yeah them for sure But there's all <laughs> kinds of performance things d- directing things that yeah <laughs> are going on there but but if, i feel like the other thing to to kind of round up the, the the character thing is that like you know when something is archetypal and used well as we're saying we don't need all that backstory and complexity because often like at the end of the day a character is like the context that they're in and their choices in their given situation yes and we always know in this movie neo's situation and like what's happening like we understand the things he's being pushed and pulled from so when he's deciding i'm going to turn and fight smith it doesn't matter what he was doing when he was five and that he had a toy yep. that he fell in love like whatever that doesn't matter in this story we're only concerned about like these right. big choices and we always have a handle on each character's Uh, objective and the obstacles and the context or we have questions around those but they're the right questions where it's like cypher he seems bad what's he up to what's gonna happen what's trinity's secret so like we have the curiosity and we have the fundamentals and they're like rock solid in every scene and i think that's why you never feel like you need more from the
3: characters exactly yeah Definitely. Um, And and there is the sort of distant Hills thing going on where there, there are these little clues about things that we don't fully get. So there's more Mm -hmm. questions in our head. Like, you know, you were saying the costume, Tricia, um, or even the, the get up Trinity. It's like that line doesn't need to be there, but that line is just giving us that little extra information about, about Trinity, a line I think about maybe once a month uh, is is when the two agents walk in, uh, and Agent Smith is like leaning over Morpheus, and he goes, "What oh, yeah. were you doing? What were you doing?" <laughs> right, and yeah. like, I, but like the fact, so like this is now telling us that there is this disconnect between Smith and the normal agents because they're all like part of the same program, but two of them don't understand what the other one was doing. So that's kind of giving us a little clue. Um, and, uh, and and the other thing I was really appreciating is people talk about this as being like one of the most stylized movies ever. And it's surprisingly restrained when you really, when you really look at any given scene of the movie, there's not, you know, it could, it was so, it could have been so easy for them to like put three times as many shots in slow-mo and for them to have Mm -hmm. every camera shot be like a Dutch angle or whipping around people. But you get a few of those every scene and they're a choice moments, but otherwise we're in a sort of realistic or, you know, sort of, normal filmmaking kind of language that's happening. Mm. And I think that, so it's the combination of, like you were saying, Michael, the actors just feeling like they're in this world um, and the fact that the the movie is not trying to blow your mind every second. It is making you believe what you're watching and then now he runs up a wall and now this crazy thing happens. But like the rest of the time, we are feeling like we are part of this world.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. And you can just feel the
2: Wachowskis, they just draw from everything, you know, so they're drawing from all of film history. And that's part of why a lot of the film does feel almost classic in the way it's shot. It's, you know, they're, they're doing some cool noir stuff. They're, they're shooting things uh, that are hearkening to different eras in film history, but not in the way that's beating you over the head. They're just using the best techniques from everybody to tell this story. And, you know, one thing that may set this movie apart from, the next two is also just the fact that they had to storyboard out every single frame to mm-hmm. ease the studio's fears about these new, relatively newcomer directors taking on this big budget action movie. So they, you know, they hired. There's the whole story about they 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 got these like Marvel comic book guys to to actually draw every single mm-hmm. frame of this movie, and that's basically what ended up on screen. And and I think you know being forced to go through a process like that you can tell you can just tell that this was yeah every shot did have this much thought put into it it wasn't just kind of they didn't wing it on set you know and then right. then it goes into the editing too which we could talk about but the editing is pristine in this <laughs> yeah. like there's like there's no cut that I would change like they're down to the frame The ed- the edits are correct and the way one shot flows to the next and the way scenes transition between each other is just like yep. an incredible flow you know, you, you never get bumped out of the movie by the edit it's always just pitch perfect
3: Totally. yeah i was really appreciating that this time around too where it's like if neo is seeing something for the first time then the camera is going to stay with him and we are going to kind of take everything in which is obviously normal filmmaking language but then then we earn the right for the edit to be like, boom, now we're on the next scene. Boom, now, like, you already know how he gets from point A to point B, so boom, now we're in this new place. And yeah, the editing just always feels like it's doing, like you said, Alex, the right thing. Like, it's like, it's it's meandering when it should meander, and it's jumping when it should jump. Mm.
0: Right. Well, like, yeah, having to balance all of those things of just, you know, what editing is, basically. is like creating a good experience, but also conveying information, but keeping everyone like grounded in the physical reality, like that it's doing all the, just like everything in this movie, it's doing all of those things at once in a way that's so smooth. And to just jump back really quick to the cinematography, there was a moment that stood out to me in this movie. And oftentimes the moments of uh, cinematography that blow me away are not the flashy ones. Mm. Like I'm actually sad in Blade Runner 2049, we didn't get to talk about uh, Robin Wright's office because it's just mm. it's a police office yeah but like every just like medium close-up of her is like the best freaking shot <laughs> i've ever seen like the, light the is lighting just, yeah. it's yeah. so i good uh and for in this movie it was toward the end when neo's like we got to go in to save morpheus and trinity's like that's crazy and it's just these like close-ups back and forth but like the shot of trinity is just so
2: gorgeous. Yes, like, yes. when she's When she steps forward and she's like giving him her speech, it's, uh-huh. it's like the best it's, moment ever. And
0: it's, <laughs> I think it's also the kind of thing that wasn't common, you know, and then like a, a summer action blockbuster doesn't have this kind of low-key, high-contrast, noiry lighting where, yes, there's a key light and you can see her face, but the rest of her is, is in shadow, but there's this like little like blue rim light and it's, the color is letting you know where you are in the, like there's just, uh, uh, God, there's just <laughs> so much going on visually in the filmmaking that is elevating it while saying, while staying, like we're saying elegant and simple and classic so that when it does go into fricking bullet time, it has earned the right to blow your mind. And so it
2: does. Just add another layer on top of all of this. Another way the movie, I think, is restrained when it needs to be and then explodes at the right time is with music. And yeah, you know, the, yeah. the movie isn't necessarily wall to wall in your face music at all. There's a lot of really quiet sections, a lot of, you know, scenes without music. And then when it does explode, it just gives you that thrill. And I'm thinking of this same scene when, 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 you know, Neo says, I'm going back in mm-hmm. and Trinity is like, no, I'm going with you. And then like that, music kicks in with like the kind of like the terminator like, so like percussiony yeah like yeah. hammer being hit <laughs> metallic yeah something yeah and it's just the best thing ever <laughs> um yeah. but but yeah and, and the, the the Don Davis soundtrack is so interesting cuz it's not like anything else it's not yeah. like a han zimmer score it's not like a john williams score it, it it feels like it just came out of this movie and couldn't have come out of any other movie
1: yeah this movie at times, or some of like the most iconic soundscapes to me are the ones that are blending the music and what could be like maybe mm. diegetic sound, mm. and so it's like the those little metallic like, kind of things where you know the, the agents are there or like um you know when the mirror is kind of like
2: sh- <laughs> like a shimmery back back sound. together. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. thank you. <laughs> what
1: that what I didn't do a good job? Like I thought I <laughs> no, nailed it there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um yeah, those kinds of sounds are the ones that are like burned into my brain mm. or um there's a shot right before they're going to torture Morpheus and the camera pans across the torture instruments. And first of all, it pans sideways, which is like, how dare you? Like, instead of going, you know, normally looking down and going this way across the instruments, it's like going like vertically across the Mm -hmm. instrument panel or whatever of like all the different torture devices that they have or those clean, you know, silver metallic... um,
0: Dentist office looking Basically, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But but there's a sound in the soundtrack that's another one of those like sort of metallic sounding shrieks almost. It's like, across that. And it's all of that working together What's the cinematography. It's this really interesting like look at that array of tools um, that's from a different angle than you would expect. It's a panning shot, right? It pans across. Um, It's actually, I think it's a tracking shot.
2: Yeah, it's a tracking shot. Th- yeah, it's, it's not, a, it, it's not yeah. a pan.
1: Yeah, exactly, across those tools. And then you have that little soundtrack. And it's also a transitional shot that gets us from where we were in the real world into this room where they're about to torture Morpheus. And so it, the attention to detail with as you're saying the edit the cinematography the sound design as well as yeah the music music never feels like it's gone like i don't Mm, notice when it's not there but i also like because it's so seamlessly interwoven with the rest of the sound design
2: yeah it seems like it comes out of like the fight scenes when you know when when Mm. morpheus is getting just Mm. you know beat up by Uh smith it almost feels like the music is coming out of there punching each other. But it's 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 like a it's <laughs> it's fully,
1: beneath it, yeah. It's fully
3: integrated. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's it's unusual. Uh, you know, the music people think of immediately with this movie is existing music, Meatbeat Manifesto and the propeller heads during the lobby mm-hmm. scene, and, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, and and those are those are like perfect scores to those moments. But then you also have, as you said, you have someone doing an actual score of this movie and the way that those things kind of go off each other because the like you said the don davis score is very like metallic and horn like brass sectiony you know yeah. the, the, the one i always think of is when he uh neil wakes up um you know for the first time and he's looking at all the Battery people and yes. he like looks down and the, and it's just one note. It's like <laughs> and you yep. keep waiting for the note to change and it doesn't. It just like gets yeah. faster and there's something like really interesting about that. Um, but yeah, it's it's like I can't think of a ton of examples. Exorcist with tubular bells. I can't think of a ton of examples where a movie used found like existing music, but that was instrumental. That wasn't just like we're gonna have like a montage to I Have the Tiger Now or something like that. Or like right, it's right. just using instrumental uh, electronic music to score its scene when you already have a composer, which takes sort of, it takes, that that's a choice, right? Instead of asking your composer to please score this scene, you're like, no, no, we already know what music we're going to use and it's not yours, sorry, but <laughs> you're going to do some <laughs> other great music in the movie. Mm.
2: But but they also don't, they don't clash, you know, the, the, the of course, transitions yeah. do feel seamless between the, you know, the soundtrack and the score. And yeah. I remember, you know, having both CDs, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> music from and music by right well,
0: you have to put something behind the you know the fun trailer that you're making with your friends to mimic the <laughs> matrix and having them flip around in slow motion and all do all the things
1: it's so nice to get to talk about a movie i know we actually do this fairly often but it's always nice talk to, get to talk movies, about yeah. movies yeah uh that is that has the same writers and directors right so mm. it's like when we, yes. you know, when we talk about the Coens, we can sort of talk about this sort of singular vision kind of thing. Um, and, and there are plenty of others, you know, we talked about Inglorious Bastards of Tarantino. There, there are plenty of others like writer directors that we've talked about. Um, but it is, I feel like there's this uh, you know, sort of shroud of mystery when you have a different writer than you have a director.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: where you just are like, where did that decision get made? Where did that line get cut? Where did that, you know, scene come from? And with a film like this, it feels all of a piece. It feels wholly realized. And we know that that's true, right? Because we know that it all came out of the same two brains, which is just a really cool. And again, drawing on influences upon influences upon influences. Mm -hmm. It's a very literate movie um, And it and it feels that way when you watch it too, which is like you you sometimes can feel like you're in on the <laughs> on the reference or like in on where that shot came from a little bit if if you are a film fan. But yeah, it's it's really cool. You feel like you're in the hands of somebody super just really really confident filmmakers from the very opening frame of this.
2: When you yeah. talk about literate, I think mean, that's is what's still so astounding about these movies. Is yeah, both literate in film history, film language, obviously seen. Everything from East and West, you know, it's not just Western film language, it's anime, it's it's just so many different inspirations for just the form that the movie takes. Mm -hmm. But then the meanings that they're drawing from, you know, these layers of meanings that are packed into every scene. That's a whole different type of literacy. That's a, you know, that's a true bookworm like academic literacy that they Mm. also bring to the Mm. table so that's that's part of what is like too much about this movie uh in a good way is like how even two people like how did two people like have enough you know bandwidth to to take in (laughs) all of these sources and and pack them into this piece of art like that still boggles my mind because it it, it, it you'd really have to be a true like renaissance man or woman you know to 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 be interested in this many things to this depth to then yeah and then be able to translate it yeah yes. there you go the right. translate piece yeah. is, the, <laughs> is
1: the really hard piece too right, right.
2: yeah right. so just once again impossible movie so impressive you know yeah, yeah believe it much. exists yeah. yeah well so
0: we're going to talk a lot more about the matrix i do want to talk about um before we go just the 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 set pieces that yes. are here yes. and yeah. the second half of the movie like i think you were saying earlier brian is just like non-stop and just the dominoes that fall like each one is just like a solid good domino and it falls and it hits the next one directly exactly mm. the way it's supposed to and each one has weight and it just builds and builds and builds in just the best possible way and like we were talking about you know neo's going back into the matrix trinity's going with him cue that song we see (laughs) smith we got like the evil monologue villain thing happening while the the, they're breaking into the building and i think this is something i was thinking about also is like all of that sequence just takes place in a building like it's you know it's a skyscraper it's a big building but it's like this is our location And we're going to track our characters as they go from here to there to there to finally arrive at their destination. And I think this was also in my brain because I I recently watched uh, Shang-Chi, which I will Mm. talk about in what we're watching. But it's, you know, it's a Marvel movie. It does a lot of things really great. But there isn't a need to be as economical Mm. now with your locations because if you have a big budget... You can start in one part of San Francisco and drive a bus across the whole thing and like things exploding the whole time and all this stuff. But I love that the Matrix is uh, so focused with its yes. its fight scenes and all of its scenes. But just like it's it, ha- it knows its location. It's like, we're going to be here and we're going to do everything we can in this location. And then once we've exhausted it, we're going to move to the next one. And mm-hmm. it's just so like satisfying to just see it happen and those are also the constraints that the characters are going to work with so it makes you lean in because you understand the boundaries of what's happening in the story
2: yeah boundaries and space like spaces like spatial coherence is so important for a good action scene and when he's facing off against agent smith in that subway I understand the space. I know what they're working with here. And I mean, they're going to interact with the space. They're going to break the space. You know, a train's going to come at some point. Like that, that is what makes for good action set piece is like, this is the stage go. And I agree on so many in modern action movies, because, you know, the sky's the limit with what you can do. That that's great but uh when that means that like space doesn't matter and nothing matters and yeah. everything is anything and people can fly for like a hundred miles and land here and then keep fighting there like I really lose interest because I don't have any sense of like what matters anymore um and this movie no fight scene is like that every fight scene has those boundaries has those constraints and I understand the stakes I understand like the danger people are in danger, <laughs> like people can die. <laughs> all these things are important, I think
3: mm.
1: well, and the locations of the different action set pieces are also operating on kind of like a thematic character yep. level as well, um so thinking about the one where they're in this uh the building where Morpheus gets captured, right, which is the building that they go to um before they go to see the Oracle now. I assume that's just where their entrance point is. Then they have to get in the car, go to the Oracle's building, get back in the car, and go back to their, this like brick building sort of thing. But the interesting thing about that building where Morpheus ultimately gets captured is that it's kind of this like gothic, you know, it's got that huge staircase in the middle, mm-hmm. a very dramatic staircase with the black and white. A uh, pattern tile on the floor, and those like sort of huge drapes at the windows, very dramatic drapes at the windows, and moth-eaten carpet, and the black cat walks by the like arched doorway. Right, it's it's all harkening back to the building where we first met Morpheus. Mm-hmm. So stylistically, that building is referencing visually the building where we first met Morpheus. It's creating this texture around the character of Morpheus with this sort of like Victorian, yeah, almost Gothic. Alice in Wonderland is the other clear reference there, right? Which we get those references all the time with Morpheus, but the black and white pattern on the floor is also a reference to Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. Um, The black cat is obviously an image that's actually Alice in Wonderlandy as well. Um, And so, lots of these things are are creating this yeah texture and feeling to that that ultimately ends up being sort of thematic when it becomes the place where morpheus meets his doom in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um at the same time you know the building where they're holding uh morpheus later has this corporate sterility to it in the same way. Literally that the two words the I was going to say. <laughs> corporate <laughs> sterility, really? Well,
3: sterile, but yes. Like I was like corporate and sterile.
1: It is exactly that, but that harkens back to the office building where we see a Neo yes. working in his cubicle yeah. earlier in the movie. And it becomes this turning point for Neo where he, after that set piece, realizes that he is the one. Um, the subway is this like really, really urban city sort of dirty place that we see um, which is of course a literal like journey into a cave and you come out somebody different, right? That's like a classic mm-hmm. archetypal transition location. So the spaces themselves are incredibly well envisioned and designed where they're operating on a different level in your brain or like they they are signaling something to you in your brain that you might not even realize that they're signaling. And at the same time, something as simple as the dojo where they have that training sequence it's so light and bright and airy. The walls are made of paper, right? Essentially, there's this safeness to it. It's clean. It's like in you know contrast to the world of the matrix, which I'm like, the matrix itself is so dirty, right? It's mm. this urban environment. Whenever they like jack into the matrix, it's this urban environment that's incredibly dirty and gross and everything is graffiti and there's just like trash everywhere all the time. Um, and people live in gross apartment buildings. But the dojo is such a contrast to that, where it's signaling to you, this is this like, clean, safe space, where, you know, Neo can just, there's no danger. It's signaling to you visually, that the stakes are low here, we're going to learn something, we're going to have fun. But it's just like a pure training sequence. There are not, you know, real-world grounded griminess to it. There's not real-world stakes to it. And the space is what tells you that.
3: And then there's color palette on top of all that. You know, everything is very gray and kind of dull in this movie, whether we're in The Matrix or whether we're in the real world. But there's still a choice of, like, the real world, we're wearing kind of light gray, but then we're going to go kick ass in The Matrix and we're wearing, like, shiny black. Um, And the people in The Matrix, when they're just, like, wandering the streets they are all wearing black and white, but then there's an occasional like woman in a red coat or, you know, then eventually the woman in the red dress and the red pill, mm-hmm. you know, and then of course there's the computer green over everything. And it's just, there's a very clear, and that'll be interesting to talk about with the sequels too. There's a very clear choice Definitely. about um uh, uh, with all the colors and, you know, everything, basically every art direction thing, there's a very clear choice being made.
0: Yeah. For sure. And we will next week with Matrix Reloaded. For now, let's go into lessons we're going to take away from The Matrix. Who wants to start? Alex. All right. Yeah, let's go, Alex. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, my lesson is is really about originality and like what that even mm. means. Because this movie we all think of as is so incredibly original. Like, where did this come from? You know, I, I keep saying this is impossible. But really what it is is a result of what I mentioned earlier, which is the Wachowskis are incredibly well read. Mm-hmm. They've they've seen so many uh they, they have a huge literacy in all these different art forms and, you know, comics and film and literature and philosophy and relig- like world religions. Like yep. they really have taken so much in and they're doing this remix of all of it putting it all to very specific use in, in crafting this, what strikes us as an incredibly original, like, hero's journey. Um, but every image, every reference came from somewhere. And I think, you know, if your goal is to be an original filmmaker, to be an original creator, you want to put something new into the world, really what that i think actually means is you need to take in a lot from history from just a wide range of art forms and disciplines and embody all of that and channel it into your work um and that's when things feel really original because you're you're taking kind of like this sum of human knowledge up to this point whatever has interested you the most whatever you gravitate towards you've kind of like Take it all into yourself, and then you can channel into it into something that is new and yet uh, has a firm foundation from all these various sources. And I think part of why the Matrix is is a remarkable integration of things is because they're not just stuck in Western traditions or Eastern traditions; like they're bringing like a, it's almost like a global. <laughs> what like wealth of knowledge to, to this movie um and so it just hits differently it just hits differently when you've got kung fu in the sci-fi like terminator movie and you it just it's all there and it all fits also like they, they didn't just shove things in kind of anachronistically like like it like it makes sense that in the matrix you can kind of fly and it makes sense in the matrix that you can do this spin in the air that is physically impossible. Cause the whole point is that it's a computer simulation. You can break the rules. So it's just, what a, what a brilliant way to take, you know, if, if you're the Wyschowskis and you are into so many different things, what a brilliant concept to come up with, to be able to put everything you love into one movie Um, and you can just feel the love in this film. Like you you don't make a movie like this unless you just are so passionate about every element in it. Um, So yeah, originality I think is really just very clever remixing and uh, you can't remix until you've actually taken in a lot of different things. Um, So, so take in a lot of different things, read, watch movies, you know, go to museums, do it all.
1: And, If you haven't seen Bound, which was the Wachowski's mm-hmm. movie before this one, I really, really... And, you, and if you love The Matrix, then why haven't you seen Bound? But, like, <laughs> it, it's a really interesting look into the Wachowski's brains before they made The Matrix. And there's a lot of prototypical stuff that you can tell they were interested in that was just sort of, like, raw material that they just kind of put into Bound. And Bound is, like, sort of a crime thriller, Um but it it definitely inhabits a world that is really similar to the matrix in some ways. And I I just really strongly recommend it if you're interested in, you know, you're talking about originality and originality is also, also flourishes from experience. So not just like experience on paper and what you read and take in and research in an abstract sense, but also what you practice, right? Your really novel ideas are going to grow out of also things that you know that you've like worked on with your hands and no work or no don't work or know how they look on screen or whatever it is. If they're communicating the thing that you think they're communicating or or are trying to get across. And so, you know, Bound is not a perfect movie. I adore it, though. <laughs> and it's if you like The Matrix, you'll like it. I promise. I promise. It gives you a lot of the stuff that The Matrix gives you.
2: I'm going to watch it this week because I can't stand the fact that I haven't seen it. Well, I have Alex, to see it. You're I have to fired. see it this moment.
3: Yeah, yeah
1: you, you must, you must. I can't yeah. wait to talk to you about it.
3: Um I just want to throw a quick uh, addition onto what Alex said. Um it's something I think about with uh, with music and bands mm. where it's like this band comes along and let's say they're, you know, a hard rock band, but then their influences are hip hop and classical and, you know, b- classic rock bands from 20 years prior or whatever, you know, blues. But then like band B comes along and they just try to be like band A. Like, so their influence is just this one thing. And then band C comes along and they're just trying to be like band B. And it's just like, you get less and less original and more and more just flat, thin kind mm-hmm. of art out of that. And I think that's what you're saying, Alex. It's just like, take all of the things that you love and then you can sort of synth- synthesize those into the thing that you're trying to make rather than just being like, I want to do that thing that someone else already did. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, emoji movie or whatever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Okay, cool. Trisha, what's your lesson?
1: I was noticing this time around that this movie introduces two different characters in the text before we actually meet them on screen. And the first is Morpheus. And we don't hear his voice for like a while, not until he calls Neo on the phone, but we hear him talked about from the very opening frame of the movie where we see the numbers scrolling, we hear Trinity and and Cypher talking about him. Morpheus believes he is the one. And then, you know, when Trinity approaches Neo in the club, she talks about Morpheus again, right? He told me I wasn't looking for him. He told me I was looking for, you know, this. And Mm. so there's all of this weight around who is Morpheus. And then we don't even cut to him. When he calls Neo on the phone, In Neo's in his cubicle, the camera does that amazing move around where like (laughs) Neo's on the phone and the camera like, hands around him and you can kind of see yeah exactly how important how pivotal literally pivotal this phone call is for <laughs> the call
2: to adventure literally exactly as the
1: camera reconfigures <laughs> but that's when we hear morpheus on the phone and that moment wouldn't mean anything if we didn't have some sense of build-up around the character and then when we meet morpheus finally in real life the hype is just so high for neo and for us Who is he going to be? It creates this myth around Morpheus as this great mentor archetype, right? Where it's almost in like, you're not the same Gandalf who did this and that. And he's like, Yes, I am that Gandalf. And you're like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, really? Again. You're not the Obi-Wan, really? O- old Ben Kenobi, that guy? It's all the same thing, right? This great They that with Trinity in the Trinity
3: the, in the club scene. Like, oh, you're the Trinity who hacked yep. such and such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: exactly. Um, but yeah, the mentor archetype is made more powerful when we have some context around it in the world to create a level of reverence from the central character for the mentor. Now, we also hear about this with the Oracle, and I think the Oracle is like just as effective, if not even more so, because she's so enigmatic. And like if Morpheus, it, it works on the back of the Morpheus archetype too. It's like, this is the only person Morpheus really believes in. And like the Oracle told me this and I fully believe the Oracle, she's never wrong. And uh, she knows everything. She freed the first of us or whatever it was, or she was there from the beginning. Whatever those you know lines around the Oracle are, and they save it and save it and save it until the midpoint. Even Cypher's like, if, if he really is the one, then why hasn't Morpheus taken him to see the Oracle? Mm. Like, well, she, well, he'll take him when, he, when he's ready. You know, Again, it's just this build up and buildup and buildup. And it all funnels into that scene, which is the mid, p- midpoint mm. for Neo's character, where he's in the room with the Oracle. He doesn't have any idea what to expect. We don't have any idea what to expect. And yet the scene is weighted with expectation and meaning. And the closer we get to it, the more it's built up and up and up, right? Where we know Mm. Trinity's secret is something to do with the Oracle. And Morpheus doesn't even want to hear what the Oracle tells him. And it's like, (laughs) ah, what she told you was for you alone, right? right? It's all just this sort of cryptic thing that pours into, we utterly believe everything the Oracle says. And the writing of that scene, with the oracle, I could talk about for literally hours. And
3: yeah, so- There's so many scenes we didn't talk about. It's like, so amazing. Yeah. My new favorite line from the movie is from that scene where she says, I can see why she likes you. And, and Nioh says, who? And she mm-hmm. goes, not too bright though. Her performance. <laughs> Her performance is-, is It's exquisite. pitch perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I'm just thinking though, like imagine building up to Morpheus the way they do, and then you get there and it's like Topher Grace uh, <laughs> <laughs> in like a tracksuit or something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but the the scene with the Oracle only really works because of all of the context that we have around it. And mm. so it's brilliantly executed and the performances are amazing. The dialogue is written with just the perfect amount of fun and also like gravity. And it's just this beautiful scene. But... We have to trust the oracle implicitly. We have to be on Morpheus' side, on Neo's side. All of our hopes are hanging in this room, hoping to hear that he is the one. And it's just, again, the benefit of an archetype is you can introduce them off screen. You can build it up off screen. You can create a sense of meaning off screen and it'll give you that impact. And so if you have the patience to then save the introduction for later and later, especially in the case of the Oracle, it really works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's
2: yeah. so good. <laughs> How did it happen? How did this movie happen? No one even knows. Yeah. That's impossible.
3: Um, <laughs> whoa. Uh, yeah. I have nothing to add. Brian, what's your lesson? Um, so I was thinking about what, like, why cool things are cool. And uh, like, why in this movie, like, what makes something cool and not just Oh, it's fashionable or something. Because, you know, if a if you put something, someone in a certain peacoat or something, 20 years later, that may look stupid, right? Like when you watch a sci-fi movie from the 60s, peacoats are wearing... classic.
1: They always look good, Brian.
3: Sure. Yeah. And, and that's <laughs> you know, example. you are using something that's like maybe earned <laughs> earned timelessness already. But sure. you know, you watch like a sci-fi movie from the 60s and they're wearing tinfoil or something. You're just like, right, oh, right. It looks so dumb. And maybe at the time it looked cool, it probably didn't, but um <laughs> But like, that's just sort of, you're kind of taking a risk with those choices. Like, I hope this car or this like outfit looks cool in 50 years. I have no idea, but it looks cool today. So let's go for it. Um, But then I was thinking about the other ways where the movie sort of, I was like, what, what are the things that bother me? What are the things that I love? And I realized that they're sort of related. So I think my least favorite line in the movie is welcome to the desert of the real. Um, mm-hmm. For two reasons. One is I just think it's kind of a corny line. But two, because the camera comes down and it shows you this is going to be the coolest thing anyone has ever said. And it's like a little calling attention to itself. And Neo flexing dust off his shoulders is saying like, look at how cool this moment is. And <laughs> lines like, no one's ever done anything like this. That's why it's going to work. Um, and if you love those moments, that's fine. But they're I t- do. But you're taking a risk <laughs> that someone may not love that moment, right you're like you're sort of putting it all out there, um, and you know, and a lot of the movies we love do, that Lord of the Rings or something you're you're putting yourself out there, and some people are going to love it, and it's going to be for them, and some people are going to recoil at those things because they're like, oh that that didn't work for me, and now I'm kind of taken out of it for a moment um, so the the flip side of that is I was like, what?" one of the things that are really cool, and I was noticing there is like the extra level of cool that so many scenes in this movie have. So like when Trinity jumps across the building in the first, in the opening sequence, she doesn't just land on the other side, she lands on a platform and then does a little roll and hits the ground and keeps running, you know? And, And imagine if she had landed and like gotten up and turned and looked away that is a moment that could have called attention to itself more, you know, and that would have been fine because it's a cool moment, but it doesn't call attention to itself. And I think that is, what makes it that little extra bit of cool, you know? Um, and and things like, there, there's just so many things that didn't have to be, they didn't have to go the little extra mile that they did. So in Morpheus's glasses, it's not just that you see Neo's reflection, it's that you see like one yeah. pill in one lens and one pill in the other lens. And when Neo's reaching for one, you only see his hand in that lens. Like just those fun little things um, that, that really just go like, oh, we did the cool thing, but then we did the little extra cool thing that you may not even pick up on the first time you watch it. And then some of the other cool things they do only are cool for so long. So Neo does his run up the wall in the dojo and then he slow motion backflip. Look how cool this moment is. He lands and he gets kicked immediately, right? And or when he's dodging bullets, he dodges like three or four bullets and then he gets hit by the next two and and Trinity has to save him. So it's like you are you are doing the cool thing, but you're not calling attention to it. You're not sort of taking the risk that, well, if you didn't think that was cool, then you might be alienated for a little while. It's just like, we're going to do it and we're going to keep going. And if you didn't notice it, you're going to notice it the third time you watch the movie and you're going to love it even more that time. But it's, you know, it's kind of like laughing at your own joke, right? Like, like I'm going to laugh at my own joke, hoping no one else laughs or, or hoping someone else laughs. But if nobody else does, I'm the only person who laughed at my joke. And like, that is a weird kind of thing that I'm currently doing. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's like in a sequel, when you reference something from the original movie like if you remember that movie mm-hmm. if you get that reference then you're going to get it but if you don't you're gonna be like what like oh i hope there's no clowns there <laughs> crickets because i didn't see the first movie in five years so i don't remember what the hell you're talking about but then you get those little references that are just sort of like subtle and you're like oh i appreciate i saw it i didn't the person next to you didn't see the movie the first movie they didn't get it, but they don't have to because the, it's fine. So yeah, my lesson after all that is: add more cool to your scene, and then remove anything that makes it seem like you're trying to be cool. So just make your effort seem effortless. Go do that. <laughs> at the end. Right. <laughs> well, and I think part of what you're pointing to is just
2: the some of some of it is restraint, and some of it is just editing. Yeah. Where yeah, right right, you don't feel like there's excess ever in this movie. Where it's like, oh, we figured out how to do bullet time, so now we're gonna just have Neo. Bullet time dodge in every scene. Right. the rest of the movie. You know, it's there is one shot that's like like the bullet time of the bullet going through Morgan's leg, leg right, is yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. like
0: we didn't we didn't need that. Yeah, that was a little extra. But yeah,
2: Talk I mean, but care. yeah, but re- relatively speaking, compared to yeah. some other action movies, like I, I do yeah, feel like minimal. They yeah they have a lot of tricks up their sleeve in this movie. They pushed visual effects in all these different ways, but they don't over. I don't think they ever overuse those visual effects. They they really uh, use them at the moment of, like, most impact and then move on. And, yeah, the, the, the uncool feeling, I think, comes from we think this is really cool, so we're just going to, like, wallow in it for too long and ruin right. the pacing, and you're kind of bored now. Um, and a movie is cool when it just keeps going. See, the Matrix reloaded. <clears throat> <laughs>
1: and there is a construction around the coolness of the characters where it's like yes. there's this they they're the digital projection of themselves right so like the way they look in the matrix with like their shiny like leather trench coats and and their cool sunglasses all the time and the you know the fact that they're just like walking around with like a trench coat full of guns and bombs and stuff that kind of like uh you know with this sort of very grim, expression on their faces and or just you know utter dispassion about being the most badass people in the world it's all kind of built into the conceit of the matrix right which is like they are showing up for battle they're resistance fighters they get to pick how they look right there's a little bit of like a video game aspect to when they're actually in the matrix that i think gets you a lot of that stuff where it's like yeah, of course, Trinity would be wearing this, like, amazing coat and, like, these amazing boots because they're not real, right? Like, and she's already, like, stronger, faster, and better at everything than, like, a normal human because to her it's kind of a video game. So, like, you know, there's this, like, badassery sort of built into the plot around, like, some of that stuff. So, I think you, I think that gets you some stuff, too, just in terms of, like, how stuff looks and like characters that have swagger to
2: them. Mm. Well, it's also, it's like a Zen swagger. Like when you look at like APOC yeah. and Switch, like there's oh, just totally. kind of like a, there's like a calmness to them when they're like, just kind of doing a role and then just like firing their gun dispassionately across a row <laughs> of people or whatever. It's, it's, there's kind of like this, this Zen infused throughout the action scenes where it's like, we're just focused. We're just focused and we're not freaking out about this.
1: And think about how, like what a weirdo mouse looks like in the real world with his like goofy hat and everything is like golden caulfield dumb hat and then think about how he looks in the real world right where he like kind of is a cool or i'm sorry in in the matrix where he's kind of a cool dude in the matrix and he's like got his huge enormous guns that he's gonna you know use to mow down a bunch of agents right before he dies so it's like again there's this like yeah if it's the I'm sorry, what's the line? The digital projection of your virtual Mm. self or something. Um, (laughs) If it is, then you're obviously going to get to make yourself cooler than you are.
0: Yeah. I think there's like a a whole interesting conversation that we had about like coolness and what is cool. And like you're saying, Brian, it's like you have to put a lot of effort into looking like you didn't put any effort into being cool. Right. Uh, And I I feel like we can come back to all of this and, and reload it and, Re- re- Revolution. <laughs> um one of these days
3: we'll remember. Yeah,
0: it's just like I haven't <laughs> said it in so long. Yeah. because um, I feel like, you know, as I think will be the theme for a lot of those episodes, a lot of the things that work really well in this movie go on to not work so well in mm. the following movies. Mm. And I think it'll be interesting to um put them side by side and compare and contrast and kind sure. of identify some of those things. Um what I kind of got from what you were saying also, Brian, ties into my lesson-ish, which is like the importance of time when creating things. Like it's just been a thing that's been in the back of my mind and we've talked about it before and it's nothing revolutionary. Uh, But I think we need to accept more as people that good things take time. Yes. Mm. And I don't know why we can't do that. Like Money. But Mm. like... Money can happen later too. And if you plan your money, you can always have the money now. You just got to offset the things a little. Anyway, it's, it all is the way it is. But watching this movie, like you were saying, Alex, you can feel like the love. There's like artist, like this movie feels like it was lived in and embodied and thought through and ironed a million times before being served. And that's why we're still talking about it 20 years ago and still amazed mm. by it and why there are those little details that you're pointing out, Brian, that make it cool, that make it that extra little bit of thing that's like, oh, wow, this was like special. And d- yeah, quality takes time and that's not revolutionary, but I think it's good to be reminded of that. And that was just something I was thinking about when watching this again. It was like, I'm so glad that it took the time that it did to make this movie Mm -hmm. and i think i'm also thinking about watching tv seasons and you know people can have years to work on a pilot but then Mm. it's like okay now go write a season or go write another
3: true detective season season two yeah
0: (laughs) right we need it we need it next year so you have a tenth of the time that you had before Mm. um anyway so i think that's just a, a good thing to say out loud occasionally good things take time
3: Yep. Yeah. Th- there, I definitely sometimes get a sinking feeling when I when like something is announced and it feels like it was too soon, like yeah, the sequel to this right. movie or video game or something. It's like, oh, it's going to be out in six months. I'm like, no, no, no. no I, no I want it to take longer because I feel like that there's no way you could have made it good enough. Mm. Yeah.
0: Uh, okay. What have you guys been watching? I'm actually going to start uh, because, and I I lied earlier when I said I was going to talk about Changgi. I'm not. I'm going to talk about. Vox again because mm. of what you guys were just talking about. Okay. So talked about Vox explained I think on our no country um episode, but they do different like series, so there's a whole Vox series just on the mind. So it's called The Mind Explained. And season 2 basically like released shortly after I talked about it in the last one and so I've been gobbling it up. So it's really good for all the reasons that I've talked about before, but this series focuses on the brain and how the mind works and what we know about it. And uh, it's narrated by Julianne Moore and which is lovely. She's so great. The five episodes of the season are how to focus the teenage brain personality Creativity and brainwashing. I haven't watched brainwashing yet, but mm. uh, personality was interesting. And I thought about Alex and Trisha, you guys, because they talk a little bit about personality tests mm. uh, and the things that are <laughs> valid or less valid, but the more widely accepted way of like categorizing people. And it was just it was a very thoughtful, methodical exploration of all of it as they do. So I think you guys would like that episode a lot. But the episode on creativity uh, was really interesting and basically was getting at all the things that you guys were talking about of like, what, what actually is creativity? How do you get into a mode where you are doing it? Like you were saying, Alex, like remixing, being able to hold things and find new ways to put things together that create something new but it requires a very certain kind of, you know, mode to be in and there are ways you can create it. And, but also it's not always good to be in that mode. And there's just this like magical balance. And anyway, all the things that I love, like it's, it's talking about cool, emotional, creative personality things, but also with like, you know, the backing of research and what do we actually (laughs) know? Like, Left brain, right brain is a thing we say. That's not actually how things work. So rather than just say that, let's actually talk about how it works. And now we Hmm. can be informed as we move forward and blah, blah, blah. So The Mind Explained on Netflix, highly recommend. I like it. Fascinating. Tricia, what have you been watching?
1: So um, I have had the pleasure now to write a couple of different movies uh, that have been made and star the actor Michael Perret. And uh, if you're not familiar with Michael Perret, he was a, a fairly successful actor uh, in the 80s, especially. And I had a movie that came that I wrote that starred him in one of the lead roles that came out last year. That is a Christmas film. So uh, if you haven't caught it yet, you can rent it in the holiday season this year. It is called Middleton Christmas. <laughs> you can just go ahead and rent it on Amazon. Anyway, it stars Michael so, uh I actually decided to go back and watch one of Michael Peret's earlier movies uh, that I had not seen. And so I saw the movie Streets of Fire, which is from 1984. It is a Walter Hill directed, written and directed movie. Uh, Walter Hill, of course, being the creator of The Warriors, another 80s classic. And uh, Streets of Fire is Michael Pere, Diane Lane, Willem Dafoe, Rick Moranis, uh bill paxton in a small role it is what a joy uh ed begley jr of course um it's it's just uh it's a movie sort of in the vein like a dystopian city urban thing like the warriors diane lane plays like a 80s rocker like kind of singer performer and she gets kidnapped by willem dafoe and his biker gang and then her ex-boyfriend Michael Perret is going to come save her. Rick Moranis is like her manager. Um, Anyway, listen, there's a lot to unpack about this movie. (laughs) It is, I'm not going to say it's as good as The Warriors, but if you like The Warriors, you might like this. It's fascinating. (laughs) Um, Anyway, really recommend Streets of Fire uh if you want to see michael peray in one of his greatest roles ever, i'd say it's probably his second greatest role uh middle to christmas is probably the peak of, course. of his career right. yeah that goes for that yeah and i have a new movie coming out with him as well um which i'll keep you guys updated the minute it actually comes out but i wrote another film uh for him that's a, a monster movie that should be dropping out pretty soon
0: oh okay Sweet. i'm excited um yeah, looking at the taglines of Streets of Fire is really <laughs> fascinating on IMDb. Uh, tonight is what it means to be young. Yep, enter a world where street gangs rule and violence is real. <laughs> a rock and roll Asterix, fable,
1: not real at all.
0: <laughs> You're about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before, where rock and roll is king, where the only law is a loaded gun, where the beautiful, the brutal, the brutal and the brave will have the ultimate showdown.
1: Okay, those last okay. two are very accurate. Yeah. It's, a rock and roll fable is like a very accurate like it's so stylized. It's all shot on a set. It's all very much like a fable. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's like 80s, but everyone is dressed like they're in the 1950s. And they're sort of like talking in '50s slang, but it's like also mm. the most 80s thing you've ever seen. Anyway. <laughs> um streets of fire is
0: amazing (laughs) yeah just watch the trailer (laughs)
1: honestly you'll get most of it for fun. but uh anyway uh really enjoyed it enjoyed that experience so
0: excellent
3: cool okay streets of fire brian what have you been watching uh so i've gone down a rabbit hole of documentaries about musicians um Ah. it's Started when uh, HBO just released Jagged, which is the history of Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, Nice, uh, which I highly recommend. It's about her coming to stardom in the first place, but then also how the album got made and sort of everything around it. And it's her present day talking, but also older interviews. And then I was like, I'm gonna keep this train going. So um, then I'd been really wanting to watch uh, the Nina Simone documentary, What Happened to Simone, and the Dolly Parton documentary, Here I Am, both of which are on Netflix. So I watched both of those, and they're both fantastic and just like really informative. Um, I am currently watching the Beatles get back, but it's made Mm -hmm. by Peter Jackson. So instead of a movie, it's a nine hour trilogy. Um, so I have (laughs) only made it to, to Sam and Frodo leaving on the boat. Uh, so I have two more, two more epics to go. Um, but then the one that I wanted to focus on was, uh, Kurt Cobain montage, montage of heck, um, Mm. which is on HBO max. And it's interesting the, the, when the documentaries match the their subject you know the nina simone documentary is sort of solemn and the dolly parton documentary is just a blast <laughs> it's just like so much fun to watch um and this really is uh maybe of any documentary i've ever seen the one that the most just it uses the form to cap to really capture what it is trying to do uh, so it's part normal documentary you know Chris Novoselic, Courtney Love, uh, Kirk Cobain's mom, like telling stories and that kind of thing, the sort of normal documentary stuff. And then sometimes it's just a music video where it's, you're hearing a song and you are watching just like footage and photos and stuff. Then there are Kurt's audio diaries um, that he had kept, some of which from when he was like 15 and they animate uh, the the footage basically. So you are hmm. seeing an animation of a 15 year old Kurt Cobain, like, playing his guitar while you're hearing real audio of 15-year-old Kirk Cobain, which is really fascinating. Um, and then sometimes they're just uncut stretches of home footage of like they're in the bathroom and they're having a conversation about something for two minutes. Um, so it really and it gets dark when his life gets dark and it really like it's it's really heartbreaking to watch. So I actually don't recommend it if you are just sort of curious about Kirk Cobain and his life. Like there are probably better documentaries, or go read like a Wikipedia page or something. But if you are a fan um, and you're you're willing to take a sort of bumpy ride, it's like a good two and a half hours um, that sometimes is just is just sort of slaughtering you with, with imagery and, and moods and feelings and, and kind of ugliness. Uh, it, it, it's absolutely worth it if that's what you want. Because um, mm. I, I was just like a mess by the end of it and just really heartbroken. So uh, I recommend wow. all of everything I said, but that was the one that I wanted to kind of call attention to because it just felt like it was such a different approach to making a documentary about someone's life. Nice.
0: That sounds intense, but yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome, uh, and Alex, what have you been watching?
2: Well, I have something that I want to watch um, because I've been wanting to go back and revisit some Werner Herzog documentaries. Uh, mm. he, his documentaries always just hit this like really magical sweet spot for me of, you can't quite tell what's real, what's not real, whereas he kind of like blurring the lines between fiction and uh, mm-hmm. non-fiction. And yet, he's always capturing some like essential truth about his subjects or about a situation. Um, you know, my favorite one of his is uh, called "Encounters at the End of the World." which is essentially he just goes to Antarctica and just talks to people who, like, live there for all or part of the year and just explores these, like, weird, surreal places and, like, what are these people doing? Are they diving under the ice for some reason, for some scientific reason? What are they trying to do here? The and cold all, is
3: madness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I and mean, you get this
2: amazing narration and then he, he decides to take some, you know, uh, some uh religious choral music and put it over his like dive footage of these like weird (laughs) creatures under the ice you know and it's amazing and like spiritual anyway so but the very first uh documentary of his that i ever saw was grizzly man i think that was Mm. the first one for a Mm. lot of people because it was kind of this phenomenon um and i saw when it came out so i was Pretty young. Um, I don't think I really appreciated the Werner Herzogness of it at that yeah. time. So I was really happy to see that it is uh, it is currently on movie because I really want to rewatch it with my adult, you know, Werner Herzog uh, perspective uh, and really soak it in for you know what it is as opposed to when I first thought I was like why does this narrator have this accent and I mean, what is what is <laughs> this documentary <laughs> but now i understand now i can get into that wavelength and i'm very excited to revisit it so nice. that is currently on movie and i was very excited to see that yeah mm-hmm. i Man, need to see it a trip because i feel like i've
0: only heard you talk about it which was also a trip but like yeah i've never actually watched it so i need to watch it nice uh, but yes, so this episode of Beyond the Screenplay is sponsored by Movie, which is the curated streaming service featuring exceptional films from all across the world. Uh, so yeah, so they have documentaries like Grizzly Man. Also on Movie right now is The Graduate, which if you wow. haven't seen it, I have a what sneaking wrong feeling. with you? <laughs> yeah, and I think there are probably some young people oh, listening that naive. probably have not seen The Graduate. And I have just one word for you. Just one word. <laughs> Movie. <laughs> which is a joke you'll get when you sign up and watch The Graduate. Um, but they also do like really fun collections. So like for Halloween, there's <laughs> they had John Carpenter's uh, like a double billing. So mm. Escape from New York, which I've never mm-hmm. seen, but played Metal Gear Solid, so I kind of know a little bit about <laughs> Uh, And then, yeah, there's a Terrence Malick double feature happening. I cannot Mm. wait
1: to watch that Terrence Malick double feature because I actually (laughs) love To the Wonder. And the double feature has more of the Javier Bardem storyline from To the Wonder, which I'm obsessed with and wish there was more of. And so I cannot wait to watch that. Hold on.
2: I have not seen To the Wonder and I'm a Malick fan. So now I have to watch that as well on movie.
0: Yes,
1: yes, you do. So
0: many wonderful things to find on Movie, and they've always supported the podcast, supported the show. uh, So we are big fans of them on many levels, obviously. They
3: are our overlords.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, anyway, you can get 30 days of movie for free when you sign up at Mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay. Uh, so head there to get a whole month of cinema for free. It's great. There's lots of things to check out. This has been our conversation on The Matrix, beginning our, our month of Matrix here. Uh, I feel like we covered some good ground on The Matrix. Lots there's more. stuff. There's lots more. I think we can come back and circle back as we move forward into Reloaded and Revolutions, and we'll see. We'll see resurrections. about Resurrections. Yeah. We'll, I want to hear what you, how you guys are feeling about it, but uh, maybe we'll start off the next episode with with that. With the it's a good idea. Temperature taking of how we, yeah. how we're feeling going into this new one. Yeah, There's so much to talk about. <laughs> yes as as always um okay uh yeah we want to say a big thank you as always of course to the patrons that make this possible uh thank you everyone for listening thank you to our producer vince major i'm michael tucker and i've been joined today by trisha rand brian bittner and alex Cayados. our twitter handles are in the show notes send us a tweet that's like a gif of the matrix that's always fun like, <laughs> and we will see you guys in the next episode
1: bye everybody
0: Bye-bye. bye
3: bye bye